0: Okay, so today we're going to, as always, do a brief synopsis with insights into the Parashah. However, the title that I sent out today was about whether we are living this world that we're living in. Is it a jungle or is it a garden? And the reason why I picked that title is, is because today is the 10th of Shvat the 10th day of the Jewish calendar month, Shvat, which in 1950, the previous Rebbe passed away. In 1951, the Rebbe accepted leadership. And the previous Rebbe, he left for his day of passing, he left a mimer, a discourse, it was a four-part series. And it opened with the verse from King Solomon, Ba'ati, Ba'asi Lagani, I came to my garden. The Rebbe, his first mimer, his first mimer that he said in public was also built on that. And it also started with Ba'asi Lagani, I came to my garden. Hence, we're going to talk about this. Um, but first, let's talk about the Torah portion. So this week's Torah portion is B'shalach. And this week's Shabbat has a special name. It's called Shabbat Shira, the Shabbat of the song, singing. Why? Because one of the major, major portions of this week's Torah portion is this song that the Jewish people sang after The miracle at the Sea of Reeds, it split for them and then later came crashing down on the Egyptians. Um, There was a song that Moses sang with the men. And there was a song that Miriam, Moses' sister, sang with the women. So this week, Shabbat is called Shabbat Shira. There are different customs, as our sages tell us, that the birds gathered and joined us in song. And our sages quote that God says that he does not withhold the reward from any creature. Hence, there is a custom. Some have a custom to actually feed the birds and some have a custom that on Shabbat, they eat something which is similar to bird's food, which is kasha. Now, if your custom is to feed the birds, which my grandfather, blessed memory, my maternal grandfather would do. I would come up on Friday and together we would place seeds out on the windowsill. Now the important part is that we did it on Friday because on Shabbat, you're only allowed to feed animals that belong to you and that depend upon you. Therefore, feeding birds that don't belong to you, you have to feed them before Shabbat, put the food out before Shabbat. And that's what we would do every year. I would come up to him and we would make like a little silver foil tray. Um, We'd take, take it out of aluminum foil and we'd put in seeds and put it on the windowsill. He lived on the second floor and we would put it there for the birds to come. Um, uh, if you own animals then you're allowed to feed them on the contrary you have to feed them even on Shabbat before you yourself eat, that's the law Uh, this law plays itself over also on Rosh Hashanah, there are those that have this custom that on Rosh Hashanah when they go to Tashlech to the water they feed the fish actually that's a no-no we don't feed the fish on Rosh Hashanah the fish that don't belong to us and don't depend upon us for feeding. Um, But anyway, so that's an interesting custom. Um, If you wanna do it, it's a beautiful custom. If you're gonna do it if you have children, make sure that they participate in it, they know about it and you share with them why, because this is the week that we sang a song. It'll also give you the opportunity to talk to your children um, about, or to yourselves about the importance Of giving gratitude, to acknowledge the miracle and to give gratitude. Also, I want to point out that because this week's Torah portion has the song of Moses and the Jewish people, therefore, the Haftorah, the portion that we read from the prophets, is the war that took place with the prophetess Devora. She led the Jewish people into battle, and after they won, Devora too gave praise and sang a song. Um, And then later I'll point out something really very interesting about aliens concerning that song. Okay. So let's go now. Also another thing important to know, there's two really outstanding things in this week's Torah portion. One of them is about the mana, the giving of the mana. There are those that say this portion every single day. There are those that say it specifically on the Tuesday of this week. And to participate in purchasing the either one of these two readings, the one of the shirah and the one of the mana, the song and of the mana is a huge, huge opportunity, a segula, a good luck of giving of receiving blessings of wealth and sustenance um i just want to use this opportunity to thank very much to mr and mrs yigan Liazov, who um who sponsored they purchased the aliyah of the mana um for twenty six hundred dollars a donation to the shul um may god bless them um, also there's the opportunity of the add-ons people that want to give and send me their name we'll say it by the Misha by the blessing of the Aliyah um, the reading of Az Yashir the song a gratitude the portal to be able to experience miracles in our life is still available and that one is for a donation to the shul of $1,800 and again there's also the add-ons for those who want to participate Um, Now let's get into the Torah portion itself. So at the last week's Torah portion, we read how Pharaoh uh, told the Jewish people to go. You want to go? Go. Now, it's interesting. It's really interesting why God did this. God didn't tell Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go and they will never return. Rather, he told Moses to tell Pharaoh that the uh, Jewish people will travel for three days in order to do sacrifices, and seemingly from the way Moses presented it to Pharaoh, the Jews were coming back. Now, why would that have happened? And um, one of the great um, teachings is, it teaches us how to deal with ourselves and our own yetsahara. and I want to share with you, it's interesting, it's really interesting how so much of science, wisdom. Um, is already in the Torah. You know, one of the things in addiction recovery that they keep on emphasizing to the recovering addict is one day at a time. Don't think that you'll never be able to drink, do a gambling or whatever drugs, whatever it may be for the rest of your life, because thinking that way makes it almost impossible. Coming from the powerlessness of addiction to thinking that i'm going to stop for the rest of my life it's almost impossible so therefore you trick yourself just today i'm not going to act out just today and that actually that way of thinking and it's so true that in the rooms of recovery when the, uh, the newcomer tells the old timer, wow, I can't believe how many years you have of, of, of sobriety and recovery. And the old timer will say, "Whoa, what time did you wake up this morning? And the young guy would say, well, I was up at six, had to get to work. He says, well, I was up at nine. So actually you have longer sobriety than I do because we only work it one day at a time. And that's interesting what's happening here. God tells Moses, don't tell Pharaoh that we're leaving forever. Tell Pharaoh we're leaving for three days and we'll deal with the rest after that. So what happens over here is that Pharaoh, after he sent the Jewish people out of Egypt, God tells Moses as following. He says, don't go the direct path towards Mount Sinai because then you're going to pass the nation Plishtim now, the Philistines, which were always a sore thumb for the Jewish people, if you read the history with King David, with Samson, there was always a problem with the Philistines. They were always having a war against the Jews. And God tells Moses, don't go that way, because if the first thing the Jewish people see is war, and here they're still you know, trying to break free of the slavery paradigm of life, Um, they're just going to turn around and go back to Egypt because the one thing they feel right now is that they can't be responsible and accountable for their own well-being. They need masters to take care of them. So if they're going to have to go to war and immediately have to fight for survival, fight for their own being, they're just going to turn around and go right back to Egypt. So therefore, go in the other direction. And where do they go? They head towards the Sea of Reeds. Now, the next word in the verse is very interesting, and I shared about it last week. V'chamushim olu b'nei Now, chamushim has different meanings. By the way, till this very day in modern Hebrew, chamush means armed. And that's the first opinion here. Chamushim means that they, when they left Egypt, they knew that they were going towards Israel. They knew they would have to have war and they took arms with them. But then there's another opinion that says the word chamushim comes from the word chamisha, five. And what it really means is that only one fifth of the Jewish people chose to leave Egypt. Now, seemingly it's very simple, right? The reason why the opinion that says that it means one-fifth is because it doesn't fit into the verse here to all of a sudden tell us that the Jewish people were armed. On the contrary, it's building up to tell us how the Jewish people felt powerless when just um, a few hundred Egyptians were armed coming to attack the Jewish people that were 600,000 strong. So it doesn't make sense that the verse here would tell us that the Jews were armed. So, therefore, there's the other opinion that says it was one fifth. Now, do the mathematics. If 600,000 were only males from the age of 20 to 60, add on children, add on senior citizens, add on the entire female gender, they say it's about 3 million. Now, if 3 million is one fifth, you understand what kind of population 12 million jews chose to die and be buried in egypt during the plague of darkness rather than to leave egypt wow anyway it tells us that moses took joseph's coffin now i want to give you a parenthesis here which will play a very big part in understanding the story of the golden calf the golden calf doesn't make sense Aaron tells Moses, it tells the Jewish people, Go bring me your gold. He throws it into the fire. How did a calf come out? And according to the Talmud, it was a talking golden calf. Where did throwing gold into the fire take on such mystical powers? So what happens is that Joseph, in his blessing from Jacob, he was compared to a shore, an ox. When Moses wanted to take the, the Joseph out of Egypt, his coffin out of Egypt, because Joseph at the end of Genesis tells the Jewish people, promise me, swear to me that when you leave, you'll take my bones with you to Israel. I don't want to remain here. So the, when, when he died, they weren't able to take him out. I mean, it's very simple. He was part of royalty. So there's different opinions where he was buried. Some say in the pyramids, like all the other royalty. And some say, no, Pharaoh knew good and well that the Jews can't leave without Joseph's coffin. And therefore, he sunk the coffin into the Nile River. Now, there's opinions that how did Moses know where his coffin was? It wasn't a public thing. And they say that he went to Sarach, Bas Usher. Sarah, the daughter of Usher, who was still alive from that generation. Either way, he reaches, according to this opinion, he reaches the Nile River. And how do I get the coffin out? So he wrote down on a piece of parchment with with Kabbalistic intentions the words, Alay Shor, arise, ox. He put that parchment into the Nile River and he said, Joseph, if your coffin arises, then We will keep our oath. However, if your coffin does not rise, then we are cleansed of our oath. We have no way to take you out of Egypt. And the parchment sunk and the coffin rose and Moses took out the coffin and kept it next to his tent for 40 years until it was brought to Egypt. Now, I'm sorry, brought to Israel. Now, another backstory. You remember in the the torturing the, of the Jewish people and their slavery, Pharaoh decreed that the amount of bricks of the quota that the Jewish people did not fulfill each day would be filled with babies. And he cemented babies into the walls. And that was a punishment to make sure that they would keep the quota. Now, Moses sees this babies in the wall and he sees that one baby is still alive. And he goes ahead and he says to God, why, why is this happening to your people? I want to take out the baby. And God says, if you wanna save the baby, save the baby. And he takes out the baby and this baby is called Micha. That was his name, Micha. Interesting, our sages call the golden calf, the idol of Micha, why? Because Micha grew up knowing that Moses saved his life and he would always follow Moses. When he saw Moses drop the parchment into the water, everything of Moses he wanted to keep, you know, and, and, and that's been throughout the generations. Any manuscript, any writing, anything that belonged to a Rebbe, their Hasidim wanted to keep. So he dived into the water and brought out that parchment. Now, if you read this, the teachings of Rashi and our sages, the reason why the Jews made a golden calf was not to replace God, it was to replace Moses because the Satan, he showed the Jews a vision of the sky being dark and the angels carrying a coffin with Moses' body. So they thought that Moses died. And that's why they said to Aaron, Moses isn't coming back. We need so, someone or something else. Micha was so distraught that he thought Moses died, that when they threw the gold into the fire, he took the one thing he had his pocket in his pocket from Moses out of frustration, he threw it into the fire. Hence the mystical powers that Moses put into those words, a lay shore, a rise ox, is how all of a sudden out of the gold came a baby ox, a calf. So interesting, I'm just sharing this with you all here because the verse says that Moses took the bones of Joseph out. So I'm just telling you a couple of backstories that will be important for us to understand later on the story. Anyway, they travel and they go. Now, Pharaoh sent spies with the Jewish people to find out what they're really doing. After three days, when they realize, the spies realize the Jews have no intentions to come back, they go to Pharaoh and they tell Pharaoh, the Jews aren't coming back. They didn't just leave for three days. They, they left, period. So what happens is Pharaoh sees that one second, the Jews aren't going the right direction. They're lost. They're lost in the desert. And, Pharaoh, and God does this and tells Moses I'm going to do this to entice him to come chasing after you so that they will receive their final blow and they will no more be a threat to the Jewish people. Now, Pharaoh goes ahead and takes 600 of the finest and he's chasing the Jewish people. Now, obviously, immediately the Jewish people, then Rashi has a question. Why would 600,000 just men from the age of 20 to 60 be so panicked over 600 soldiers coming. Even if they all just charged, I mean, 600 soldiers are not gonna win, and it's 600,000 men. So Rashi tells us something very interesting. They saw that not only was Egypt coming, but the spiritual ministering angel of Egypt was coming to bring the Jewish people back. Now here is a very very interesting verse. In verse ten, it says, "Oparo hicriv," and Paro brought close. Now, simply, it should have said, "And Paro got close," but it doesn't say that. It says, "Paro made the others get close." Our sages tell us from here something painful. They tell us that the enemies of the Jewish people serve a purpose in bringing the Jewish people back close to God. There is a saying that when Jews are in trouble, they call out to God. Hence, so often we get so comfortable and with our comfortable, we get complacent. And then the minute there's a new Pharaoh, all of a sudden we find ourselves turning back to prayer turning back to god hence it says not that paro got close but paro brought close the jewish people to god the jewish people go into a panic they tell moses what did you do why did you take us out here to die why didn't you let us stay in egypt better be slaves than to be dead and there was four different groups were taught one said we are not going back let's go to war The other said, let's go back. The other said, let's pray. And the other said, let's commit suicide. As you know, the sad story that happened in Masada. So Moses tells them, none of the above. You wait. You do nothing. God is going to perform. And the verse says, God will wage war for you and you shall remain silent. However, Moses himself was praying to God, thinking that that's what he has to do as the leader of the Jewish people. And God responds to Moses, now is not a time for prayer. Now is a time for action. And what action do you have to do? Very simple. I told you at the burning bush that they're to head from Egypt to Mount Sinai. So go forward. And what do you mean go forward? There's the water there. You lead the Jewish people into the water, raise your staff and the water will split. And that's what happens. Now, what happens is God sets up everything to protect the Jewish people. God moves the cloud in between the Egyptians and the Jewish people, that when the Egyptians were shooting their arrows and their spears, the clouds caught it. And didn't allow it to reach the Jewish people. And the Jewish people are walking into the waters, and the water became solid. It was like a wall to the right and to the left, and the Jews walked through the waters. Now, it seems to be the way Universal Studios has it done. There's just one opening, and there was a wall to the right and the left, and they marched through. Our sages tell us no. Every tribe watched through their own canal, their own, so to speak, lane. So really, it it didn't break into one break. It broke into 13 breaks. There was the 12 breaks of the 12 tribes, the way they're counted with Joseph's two sons. And the 13th one was for the tribe of Levi and all the converts who didn't belong to any specific tribe. Now. Interesting, I want to share with you. toisvis great sages, grandchildren of the great Rashi, tell us that they did not cross the sea. They made a U-turn in, in the sea. They came out on the same side that they went in. The G- Egyptians went chasing straight after them. And that's when God told Moses towards the morning to go ahead and to once again lift this, uh, your hand and another wind will come and it will bring the waters back down into its original strength and the Egyptians would perish. Now, in our Az Yashir, we say, there did not remain one of them. And our sages say, read it carefully, as there did not remain but one of them to tell the story. Which one is that? That one was Pharaoh. Now, according to the teachings of our sages, Pharaoh ends up being the king of Nineveh to who Jonah, Jonah comes, that whole story with Jonah that we read on Yom Kippur, swallowed by a whale, he was running away. He comes to warn the king of Nineveh that if your people don't change their ways, God is going to destroy them. And the minute The king hears this, he gets off his throne, puts ashes, rents his garment, and gives a decree that everyone is to do teshuva. Our sages tell us that 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 king of Nineveh was Pharaoh who has learned his lesson. So yes, Pharaoh started off as an addict who was powerless. He wanted to say go and he couldn't, but he ends up being recovered and he ends up doing teshuva as the king of Nineveh. Now, interesting, just going to give you a short version because I want to talk about the garden versus the jungle. But the question is, if they didn't have to cross the sea, then why this whole big Steven Spielberg production of the splitting of the sea? And our sages tell us, that the splitting of the sea had nothing what to do with the Egyptians. God didn't need to do that for the Egyptians. Rather, God did that because the Jews needed to experience it. Why did the Jews need to experience it? Number one, the Jewish people had to have official conversion before they received the Torah. And part of that official conversion is the mikvah. The symbolism of the mikvah of going into the ritual bath is what the splitting of the sea is all about. On a deeper mystical level, the whole process of the, of the Torah is to give us a different set of eyes, a different paradigm to all of reality, which is what we're gonna talk about soon when we talk about the garden versus the jungle. In other words, The only way that the Jewish people would be able to truly accept the Torah and throughout the generations in a secular world, in a world of bills and and, and strife, to be able to keep Torah and mitzvot is only if the Jewish people would have a clear conscience that everything that goes on in the world is but a glove upon the hand of God. Hence in Kabbalah, we have the waters that cover the dry land beneath it. What God does for the Jewish people in order that they should truly be able to receive the Torah, truly be able to say, we will do and we will hear, and to survive for the millenniums with the Torah, God shows them the hand within the glove. God splits open the water so that they can see the ground beneath it. In the world of Kabbalah, the glove and the hand is referred to as the revealed world and the hidden world. What God did for the Jewish people was he cracked open the revealed world and allowed them to see that this is all a process called nature, cause and effect, but it's all a system, which is nothing more than a glove upon God's hand who truly controls everything. Now, when the Jewish people see, they actually were afraid that they came out on one side and the Egyptians came out on the other side. And Moses prayed because the Jewish people were still stuck in that victim paradigm in terror. And what happens? God, Moses prays to God and God has the water spit out the 600 soldiers. And now the Jewish people see that they're truly Egypt is over with and they begin to sing with Moses. Now here's something very interesting. In the five books of Moses, not the prophets, not the scriptures, in his prophets and the scriptures, you have so many times in Isaiah and Zechariah, and you have all over the place, Malachi talking about Mashiach. However, interesting in the five books of Moses, We don't have any direct verse telling us about Mashiach. Now, this is problematic because Maimonides says that of the 13 unbreakable faiths, in other words, if someone doubts certain details, he's not called a heretic. However, there are the 13 animamins with if any Jew doubts one of these 13, then he's considered a heretic because he's not talking about doubting a detail. He's doubting a fundament of the Jewish people. And as you know from the famous song, one of the 13 animamins is about the B'biyas HaMashiach. You have the famous song, Ani A-ni-ma-min, Animamin, right? And it goes, B'biyas HaMashiach, so we have to believe and await with complete faith in the coming of Mashiach. Now, how could it be that one of the fundamental beliefs of the Jewish people is not in the five books of Moses? So Maimonides talks about different places where you find it. Our sages talk about different places. It's about the cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. It's in the, in the curses, which turns into blessings of Bilam. But then our sages also say it comes right here. The verse does not make sense. It says "As yashir Now, prefix yud, yashir, means futuristic. Yud is one of the four letters which makes a word be futuristic. It should have said az-shar, then sang. Not "As yashir then will sing. From here our sages say, we have proof that Mashiach is going to come. There's going to be a resurrection in which Moses and the Jewish people of that generation will sing once again, but this time the song of the final redemption, Shir Chadash. Now, this this Shirah, this song, if you look in the Torah, the Torah is always written in columns. Now, if you go to shul this week, and when they lift the Torah, look carefully, you're going to see one column wider than all the other columns, is written like bricks. In other words, word, space, word, space, word. Next line, space, word, space, word, space. Next line, word, space. So it's like bricks, leg. And we do that twice in the Torah. We go differently. Once in this song. And the second time, the portion that we read most often between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur called Hazinu, over there, we don't do it like bricks, but rather like two columns. But the two times that we avert from the regular writing of the Torah format is in these two songs, this week's Torah portion. And then after Moses sings with them, comes along Miriam, and she tells her her friend, the women, come join me with tambourines and let us dance and sing. Now interesting. We read this piece and again, it's really, really an opportunity for miracles and gratitude in our life. And right after that, we don't finish. It's not like, okay, last verse of of Miriam singing with the women and we stop. No, we go straight from there into a negative experience where the Jewish people come to a place where the water is bitter and there is no water to drink. Interesting. You would think like, okay, stop, keep it beautiful. Next chapter, start the problems. No, the Torah is very, very practical. Yesterday's miracle is not going to answer today's pain. It's all a paradigm. Are we going to take yesterday's miracle to know, don't worry, God's taking care of us? Or are we going to say, well, that was yesterday, but today we're going to die interesting now they come there and there's bitter water and they cry out to moses and they actually doesn't say they cried out like a mensch but rather they complained and god tells moses that take this branch this wood and throw it into the water and it will become sweet. Now, interesting, our sages tell us what kind of branch it was. It was a branch from a very, very bitter. And Hashem is saying, I'm not saying to put in sugar to sweeten it. I want to show you that all of this is under spiritual definition. You're going to use a bitter branch to make the bitter water sweet. And together with that, God goes ahead and starts telling Moses, start teaching them some laws. And the verse says that over there, he put some statutes and judgments for the Jewish people to start learning. One of the things it says over there is that God started, he told Moses, start teaching them about Shabbat. Simply speaking, they weren't keeping Shabbat yet. That's going to happen soon with the manna. But here they started learning about the Shabbat. Okay, and this reading finishes. It's interesting because even though I told you it doesn't finish with a song and the gratitude, but if you look at the last words that happen with this whole complaining with the waters being bitter and then becoming sweet, is that God tells Moses to tell the Jewish people if they will follow on my path, I will not put any of the sicknesses that I placed upon Egypt. I will not place upon them. Ki ani Hashem rofe'echa. That's the conclusion of it all. I, God, will heal you. Okay. Then they travel. And now all the bread that they took out of Egypt, which became matzah, there's no more. They ate it up. I mean, there's a huge, huge, huge nation there. And now they turn again to Moses and they start complaining. They complain Better that we should have died in Egypt where at least we had food and we ate rather than to die here in hunger. And God tells Moses, they asked for meat. I'm sorry, they asked for meat and they asked for manna. Now, those of you who get the email, you will read that there's a lot of insights here from the Rebbe in the repetitiveness of the verse. There's a lot going on here. A, they asked for bread and meat. Bread, they were right for asking for meat. Why are you asking for meat? You guys came out with animals. Go ahead and take from your own animals and eat meat. Number one. Number two, they complained. Number three, even though they complained, who did they complain to? God. They know that there is no other choice. God is the provider. So there's a lot of things going on here in these verses that God and Moses are dealing with. However, what is clear in the verses is, that the manna was given with love, it, uh, it came down in the early morning, waiting for the Jewish people. It was gift wrapped with dew on bottom and dew on top. It was a special bread. Interesting, it's called bread from heaven. You know how when we eat bread, we make a bracha, Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz, who brings forth bread from the ground. We're taught that the Jews made a bracha on the manna. They said who brought forth bread from heaven. However, they also received the quail and the quail was not given pleasantly. It was actually given as a punishment and the people were going to see later from the quail, there was actually a cause of death. However, here we're taught the beauty of the manna and how God gave it so lovingly and God tells them every person, every single day, don't put away for tomorrow. I'm giving you every day. You don't have to worry. You don't have to work to get today's and you won't have to work to get tomorrow's. It's a miracle. And we're going to learn about trust here. And we learned this beautiful portion and God tells them now for the first time to keep Shabbat in the sense of that on Shabbat, you will not go out and collect it. On Friday, you'll have double. And then you'll have for the Shabbat and and for Friday and Shabbat. Now, according to some opinions, this is the reason why when we make the blessing on bread on Shabbat, first of all, we have a table called under, a challah covering on top, just like the dew was on top and on bottom. And that's why we have two challahs. Some of the opinions say, that this is because on Friday, we got a double portion of mana. This is the big, big segula, the big blessing opportunity for the um, uh, Parnasa to have blessings of sustenance and abundance. Now, why is this a blessing today? We don't have mana. The Baal Shem Tov says, That every Jew believes that even though today God wants us to go work to earn a living, the work is not what gives us sustenance. It just creates a vessel. Birchat Hashem, the blessing of God. He to Asher. That is what makes us rich. So therefore, the manna is not a story of old but rather God tells Moses to put the manna in a jar and to put it away for generations that the Jewish people should always know. Yes, you have to get an education. Yes, you have to go to work. Yes, you can't just sit and wait for miracles. However, let us not be foolish and think that our brilliance in the stock market and in real estate and in everything is what makes us rich. One clearly sees that some have what we call the Midas touch. Others work 60 hours a week and can't make ends meet. Hence, we know clearly it's not about talent. It's not about due diligence. It's not about effort because simply speaking, we see it doesn't work that way. Yes, God gave us the gift of America where we each have the freedom to pursue abundance, happiness. However, there's also something which is beyond that, which is the mana aspect, which is all about the blessings. And here I'm gonna tell you a quick story of the Reichman brothers. The Reichman brothers, they're in Canada. They have a big real estate company amongst all their other stuff, Olympia and York. And, and it's, it's, the one, it's the one construction company that did a lot of work in Manhattan. And it would be the hugest Kiddush Hashem because it wouldn't work on Shabbat. And everyone knew that if it was a Reichman project, there's no building on Shabbat. Very, very wealthy brothers. Now, at one Sheva Brachot, it was after post-wedding seven-day party. They were sitting there. There was a family wedding. And someone, you know, there's always this one nudnik who doesn't stop. No, no, no. Give us a secret. Give us a secret. How did you become rich? And he was driving this one brother crazy. And this brother, just leave me alone, leave me alone. I'm here by a family Simcha, what, what do you want from me? You want from me some, 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 in trading? I don't have that for you. But the guy wouldn't stop. Come on, come on, come on, tell us. Everyone has a right to be rich. The other Reichman brother saw what was going on and he just like, oh my God, let me just throw something at him to leave my brother alone. So he said like this, he said, listen, get this straight. Wealth is 97% luck and 3% talent. Now, the brother that was silent the whole time all of a sudden said, and all we do is pray that the 3% of talent should not get in the way and become a hindrance to the 97% of mazal. Now, for a Jew, the word mazal isn't esoteric. The word mazal is birkat Hashem, the blessing of God. Hence, today, today to pay your bills, you must receive mana, the blessing of God, within the work that you do. Okay, going along further, right? Again, they now come to the part where there is no water. And this time it's not about bitter. There's just no water. And this is the famous story, where God tells Moses to go ahead and to hit the rock. And what happens then, what happens then is that the water from the rock, stayed, each one of the 12 tribes, the prince of the tribe, took his stick and drew a line from the rock to his, where his tribe was. And that's how the water reached that tribe. And by the way, interesting of interesting, the Talmud talks about the laws of mikvah and brings a proof that the rock was the size that would be kosher for a mikvah. Interesting how that's the dealing. Okay, at this point, we learned that the Jewish people complained about the bitter water. The Jewish people complained about the meat and the bread. The Jewish people complained that they didn't have water. So now, then still not realizing, you know, talk to God. I want to say something here. Are we doing time wise? Yeah. I want to say something quick here. I once heard a great saying don't pray to God, talk to God. You know, we think in our prayer, you watch certain people pray, how they cringe their face and it's like it's like a painful fight they're having with god god please 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 have compassion that's not what prayer is all about don't complain and don't nudge talk to god talk to god now because the jewish people haven't learned that yet everything is a fight between them and god when they need god they know that only god can provide but they haven't learned yet that God loves them and stop fighting and stop arguing and stop complaining and stop begging. Just turn to me, just talk to me. And what happens is because of that, all of a sudden they have their first war. The Amalek comes against the Jewish people to attack. And Moses takes Joshua and says, go and collect for us people that will go out to war. And, They have the fight against Amalek. Now Joshua, for whatever reason, was told by Moses, do not annihilate them, weaken them. And then God gives us the commandment that we should always remember to eradicate Amalek. Now, just that you should know, eradication of Amalek is only the mitzvah uh, upon the king of the Jewish people. Hence, in the history of the Jewish people, throughout the judges and the prophets, you don't find anyone going to war against Amalek until we have our first king, King Saul. Now that we have a king, Samuel says we have to fulfill the commandment. Number one, number two. The Talmud tells us San <speaking in Hebrew> came along and he moved everyone around on the world when he conquered the entire civilization. And he didn't want people to remain on their land because that would produce patriotism and that would have continuous rebellions. So he moved nations, the Egyptians he moved here. Here, that means the people in Egypt are not the true Egyptians. The people of Amalek are not where they, they're no more the real Amalekis and therefore we don't know who is the offspring of Amalek. Now, King Saul annihilated all the males besides the king. The night before, the king's name was Agag. The night before Agag is brought to Samuel and Samuel will slay him, he made a woman pregnant. Hence, in the Megillah, generations later, the story of Mordechai and Purim, what is Haman called? Haman ha Haman who came from Agag, the king of Amalek. So today, when we talk about the eradication of Amalek, We're not talking about the eradication of a physical nation. We're talking about the eradication of absolute arrogance and chutzpah. Imagine the Jewish people, everyone knew that Pharaoh and Egypt was the superpower of those times. They heard about the plagues. They heard about the splitting of the sea. Who would dare go fight against the Jewish people? A Amalek is that chutzpah. Oh, yeah? You think you're untouchable because you have God? We will show you. And that chutzpah is what we have to eradicate. Okay. Now let's talk about this garden. So the teaching with which the 6th Lubavitcher Rebbe finished his, his leadership period is on the Ponda verse, Ba'ati legani achoti I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. Now, the next year, the Rebbe starts his first public mimer, Basilagani. Every year on this day, on the 10th of Shvat, the Rebbe would deliver another discourse with the verse Basilagani. Now, the mimer, 20 chapters, I just want to talk about the opening verse, right? And that's how you can hear it on YouTube, on Chabat.org. The Rebbe starts Basilagani, Achisikalo. What does that mean? The first thing the previous Rebbe does in his mimer is, he quotes the Medrash. Basi Legani, I came to my garden. One second. Before God came to this world, it's a jungle. There was Nimrod, the king, who fought against monotheism. There was a story of the flood. There was a story of the Babylonian Tower. This wasn't God's garden. This was a jungle, a free-for-all. So why is God saying, I came to my garden? So, therefore, the Medrash says, Gani, I came to my garden saying that before Adam sinned, this physical world was my garden, not the spiritual realms. The spiritual realms is not what God likes. What God chooses, where did God give his Torah, was on this world. This world was his garden. In which world is there a beta migdash, which is called a house of God? Only this world. So Hashem is telling us, you should know that long before Adam ate from the tree, long before Cain killed Abel, long before Enosh brought idolatry, long before Pharaoh, long before all these wicked people, this world in genetics, it is my garden. What is the definition of a garden? A garden is not where you live, that's the house. A garden is not where you produce your food and sustenance, that's the field. A garden is all about pleasure. So while all the mechanics of the house and the mechanics of the field and everything, the spiritual realms is is the machinery behind it all. However, where is the ultimate garden of God? That is in this world. Hence, our sages say, better one hour of good deeds and teshuvah in this world than all of paradise. Because here is where there's freedom of choice. In the spiritual realms, everything is perfect, but nothing is precious because there is no freedom of choice what greatness is there if an angel that has no evil inclination, has no arrogance, has no ego, has no doubts, does what God wants? Whoop-de-doo. You turn on the computer and the computer actually goes on. Whoop-de-doo. But when you have down here, when you have down here temptation, when you have down here darkness and doubts, And here we have the freedom of choice to choose to believe or not to believe, to live in accordance or not to live in accordance. Do I make myself the center of the universe and everything exists for my personal gain? Or is the center of the universe God, goodness? It's about service to others. We have that choice, and that choice has to be made again and again and again, one day at a time, one hour at a time. Hence, what really looks like a jungle looks like a jungle only because it is the garden. Let me explain. The jungle is what gives us freedom of choice. There is no jungle in heaven Everything is beautiful and calm. However, in this world, there is chaos. And the reason why there's chaos is because without chaos, there is no freedom of choice. Without darkness, there is no light. Without rebellion, there is no obedience. And hence, the whole reason why this world looks like a jungle is so that it can be the garden The place of pleasure, the little things that we do, which seem so insignificant. These little insignificant things are the most significant of all for God, because they are precious. There was a person who came to the Rebbe, a big Rosh Hashiva, back in the 50s, no one then was dealing with, with, with people with Jews who weren't who were secular or disconnected from Torah. On the contrary, all the yeshivas looked at them as wicked. We need to protect our children, don't deal with them. The Rebbe was the first and only one who was dealing with reach out, don't live here in Kran Heights, move out. They need you. Now, thank God, others have taken pursuit, and <laughs> some even want to claim that they're the. Founders look in the newspapers in the 50s, you'll see. But the point over here is that this rabbi came to the Rebbe and he told the Rebbe, Why? You're such a scholar. Why aren't you dealing only with your Hasidim of your yeshiva boys? Why are you dealing with people with spiked hair, with tattoos, with, with earrings? Why are you dealing with secular Jews who don't keep Shabbat, who don't keep kosher, don't keep modesty? Why? And the rabbi said to him, I want to tell you a story that was written to me. There was a Jew who woke up Yom Kippur morning, and he heard the radio. For those of you who remember, on New York, the olden days on the radio, they would play on Yom Kippur, Kol Nidre. He said, oh my God, it's Yom Kippur. I totally forgot it's Yom Kippur. One second, I remember the synagogue sent me there to buy seeds. I bought seeds. Where are those tickets? He goes ahead, he looks at his drawers. Ah, he found the ticket. And he says, you know what? After I have my breakfast, and Yim Kippur, you're supposed to fast. After I have my breakfast, after I take my shower, you're not allowed to take a shower, You kipper. I'm going to drive to work. You're not allowed to drive. You're not allowed to go to work. But on the way, I'll stop by the synagogue and I'll spend some time. And he goes there. He goes there to the synagogue. He sits there for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a half hour. And he says, okay, I did what I had to do. Young kipper, a Jew, I was in synagogue, I listened to the singing, to the prayers, I got to get to my office. The rabbi asked this rabbi, what do you think? And this guy blew a casket. That's exactly what I mean. Why would you ever deal with such a Jew? You should be giving your brilliant teachings on the Talmud, on Kabbalah, on Jewish law, on Rambam. Why? Why would you take from your time and even read a letter about such a Jew? And the Rebbe said like this, you see, all you see is a Jew who desecrated Yom Kippur. But from God's perspective, this Jew doesn't know any differently. He was brought up to think that the Orthodox is old fashioned. He was brought up to think, listen, you know, we got to stay connected with Judaism. It's it's a nice tradition and everything. It's our identity. But come on, we got to get to work. We got to go to the office. But he stops for 15, 20, 30 minutes. You have any idea what that feels like to God? The Jew who's not even sure he believes just remembers that his grandfather went to shul on Yom Kippur and he takes a half hour of his busy day on Yom Kippur to sit in shul. Perfect? Absolutely not. Precious? Absolutely yes. And what makes it precious? is because we live in a jungle in which Yom Kippur is an old-fashioned thing. Yom Kippur, even in certain affiliations, is not to be kept a full day, don't be serious. I mean, come on, really fasting and everything. But the fact that this Jew holds on to it, that's something even an angel can't do for God because an angel is stuck being perfect. We are blessed with being imperfect so that every little thing we do turns this, reveals, I shouldn't say turns, reveals again the hand within the glove, the garden within the jungle. And that is how the Rebbe started in 1951, his entire leadership, telling us, guys, you're going to see a jungle but I want you to look through my eyes. See the garden that's waiting to blossom right there in front of you. The Rebbe said, you're going to see Jews who look like they've forsaken everything. Look again and see. See that beautiful, precious diamond in the rough. See the one that against all odds is at least holding on to some identity. Maybe he never went to shul, I'll never forget the first time I saw a Jew with a huge star of David tattooed on his arm. And I told him, My dear friend, according to Jewish law, you're not allowed to have a tattoo. But how I sit in awe that when you did decide to make a tattoo in the boondocks, amongst all the other guys that have all the other crazy tattoos, you're making a statement. I am a Jew and I am proud. That, my friend, is what God is saying. Long before this place became a jungle, it was, is, and always will be a garden. Long before any of these Jewish people started struggling with their identity, with their observance, with their connection, with their faith, each and every one of them are believers, the sons and daughters of believers who are connected to me genetically, innately, against all odds. People, thank you.